Welcome to the T-Hub Podcast. I'm Leland Steele. And I'm Moby. Happy New Year, Leland. Happy New Year, my friend. 2024. Who would have thought we'd live to see the day? <laughs> I don't know with the amount of, uh, you know, drinks I've had through the years and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> Yo-yo dieting. Driving with my brother in a snowstorm in 2006. You know, there's <laughs> situations I never thought I would survive. <laughs> to pick you up, nonetheless. <laughs> right. You know, to, to, to date, you could roll a die and uh, pick a option that would have should have killed us a decade ago. <laughs> yeah. It would need to be like a D40, though. That's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, you want a stupid shit. I mean, I always thought... I always said I would die before 30 or live to 150, so... I'm past 30. I, I guess we know what that is. I guess I'm going to make it to 150. <laughs> well, so this is funny because you mentioned 150. So I told you I was um, watching Lord of the Rings Extended Edition for the first time with one of my really good friends, Joe. And I don't call him listener Joe because he doesn't listen to the podcast, but really good guy. And Leland, have you read like Lord of the Rings, the books? Like, do you know the story of the books? Uh, yeah, I've read the books and seen the movies. Okay. Well, one thing I didn't know is that Aragorn is literally 87 years old in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. He comes, he comes from this. Okay. But so here's my thing. It changes how I view it because sure. Arwen, who he ends up marrying is like a 2000 year old elf, whatever. I knew that, but like, there are some extended scenes where Eowyn, who is like the Rohan warrior horse lady, where she gets told that Aragorn is 87 years old and she almost kind of gives like grandpa thirsty eyes to him when she hears that. <laughs> <laughs> like, what show am I watching? This is supposed to be a nice, respectful, classic fantasy. But she's got it for the 87 year old kings, man, because uh, Aragorn, his line of, of men lived to about 150. So that's where I went with that tangent. Okay, so he's he's like more older than middle age then. Yeah, how Joe explained it to me is that like many, many, many generations ago, Elrond, who is uh, Arwen's dad and he's, you know, played by Hugo Weaving and runs Rivendell. He was, he's actually a half elf and he had a brother, I think, named New, Numenor. And... They had to make a decision somehow whether to be half elf on the elf side or half elf on the human side. And Numenor chose to be human on the human side. So he lived to be about 400 years old or something like that, but he was mortal. And somehow by Elrond's choice to be elf, he's immortal just by choosing to be an elf. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but... Um, Aragorn directly <laughs> comes from that line of Numenor and apparently they get progressively like as the generations go on, they're living closer and closer to a normal human lifespan. But at the time of Lord of the Rings, they still live on average about 150 because they got some of that elf blood. OK, interesting. Hmm. It's weird. I don't know which makes less sense, that or the force. So I'm sure we'll debate it on the <laughs> podcast over the coming year. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I'm excited for this episode here. Uh, listener, it's just kind of a normal episode. 
Leland, pretty exciting. You're doing some traveling in the month of January, so we kind of had to whip together something here. True. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, and uh, so no guest today, listener. Uh, just a couple segments, but some interesting stuff to to dig into. Uh, but let's start with banter. What have you got for banter? Honestly, I don't have anything. <laughs> I know you. Well, one of my banters lot. has to do with you. So. Oh, great. Well, then I'll take credit for it. <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> oh, I oh, don't speak too soon. Uh oh. Because my banter involving you is that you proudly told me that Emma has beaten Dave the Diver. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I I am wondering, my the reason I specifically bring that up is did you watch her play? quite a bit like were you entertained watching and if not can you share like how emma thought the game was like did she like it did she just beat it for the sake of being completionist uh well she is a bit of a completionist but i i think she, yeah she definitely enjoyed it. i mean she played the hell out of it like she did everything she could and the game seems pretty lengthy like there's a lot of shit that eventually you do and there's it's Clearly, like, there's way more than just you dive down, catch fish, and then, you know, serve the fish at, a, at the sushi plate, right? Like, it just it seems like the game just, like, blows up, especially with the areas that uh, eventually you you unlock and, you know, through varying equipment that you upgrade, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I watched uh, a pretty good chunk, uh, especially at, like, varying stages of the game. So I have a pretty good idea of how the game progresses. Like... <laughs> enough where I don't have to play it myself. <laughs> like legitimately. <laughs> that, that's fair enough. But you bring up a good point. And in, in this listener, if you ever considering playing Dave the Diver, you boot it up. You have to know this game goes for about 12 hours where it's pretty small and tight. And then it blows open where you start to get like a number of different farms, like a land farm, a sea fish farm. Like you said, there's new areas, a town opens up, a branch. You get a branch and where that's kind of fun is the branches mostly run off automation, right? You set a manager, you set servers and cooks for the branch and you kind of just have to let it do, do its own thing because um, you're watching the main place. But I, I guess my point is, listener, if you play Dave the Diver and you're a couple hours into it and you're like, okay, this is meh, but it seems kind of small scale, honestly, like get to the point where you unlock the farms in the town and everything like that. Because then you'll be at a better position to judge it. Um, okay, well, that was my first banter. Uh, my second banter has to do with just the craziness of Steamboat Mickey entering the public domain. Oh. In case the listener doesn't know, uh, Steamboat Mickey, which is one of the like the oldest forms, of, one of the oldest forms of Mickey Mouse, but one of the most famous, after years of delaying somehow with their clout and I don't know, perhaps court cases or something. Mickey entering the public domain where anyone can use it for any reason. That finally expired January 1st, 2024. And like immediately, like January 2nd, um, of course, two, two horror movies based on Steamboat Mickey were announced. <laughs> which, <laughs> following on the excellent Oscar-worthy Winnie the Pooh Blood and honey. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> now, I don't know the name of the second horror movie. The first one that just appears honestly to be a generic slasher is called Mickey's Mouse Trap. Um, I do like the name. 
But okay, so the weird thing about that is it's apparently slated for release in March of this year. That's two months from now. They they like had to have made this whole thing in advance. There's no other option. You can't just make a movie and release it in two months. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can if it's if it's complete <laughs> shit. <laughs> I guess. Well, it you know the screenshots I've seen look very like they're just taking advantage of the novelty of Mickey moving to public domain. Like there's a few shots of like Mickey just holding a bloody knife in like a door jam. Well, I find door jams terrifying for reasons that shall not be disclosed. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, it does seem pretty, pretty typical and, and thrown together. The video game interests me because the name of the video game that's been announced, the, the name is literally infestation comma origins, not like Mickey's infestation or Mickey's steamboat infestation. It's just infestation origins. It's being developed by a company called Nightmare Forge Games uh, for release later in 2024. I guess I'm just more interested in that because I know the one movie is just a slasher flick. And but, you know, I, I am wondering what the the interactive video game will be like. So I'm sure you're going to see a lot of Mickey stuff. I've seen like way too much cursed AI, Mickey, AI generated art on some of the groups I'm part of. It's just getting overwhelming. And, um, you know, everyone seems to think like, yeah, oh, look, Mickey killed Goofy. I'm like, in a group like this, where it's just parody, you could have been posting these pictures 10 years ago. It's free use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And like, do people even understand public domain? Now, there was an interesting situation I heard today, and this is the last part of, of my banter, which is that Disney copyright struck someone who... They basically did the entirety of Steamboat Mickey on YouTube, and it was a voice actor. I should have written down his name, but like I only found out an hour ago. And so what he did is he did his own voiceovers for all of Steamboat Mickey and posted it. And that should be 100% legal. But there was a copyright strike on YouTube. His video is currently demonetized. Uh, he's complaining. He says he'll take it to, to court if necessary because like Disney should not have a thread to stand on or hang on to here public domain listener if you don't know it's like after a certain amount of time intellectual properties that are cop covered by copyright and trademark um in the united states and most of the western world follows them those eventually become public that anyone can use them for any reason the idea is that no person or company can trademark part of human knowledge or experience for like forever literally it, it, what, is it something like 75 years or something like a Sherlock Holmes is now public domain fairly recently. Love, I mean, that's why we yes. always get so much Lovecraft content because Lovecraft has been public domain for decades now. Right. Like, yes. Now I don't know the, I, I'm not going to talk out of my butt. I don't know the exact amount of years and it's more confusing because Disney was able through their clout to delay Mickey this long, but Yes, you're correct. Whether it's traditionally the 50-year mark or 75 years, it's something like that. It's interesting, but you and me are at the age where we're just entering middle age, and we're probably going to see a lot more notable things in our lifetime enter public domain over the next 10, 20 years, because we're now moving, like, 
specifically in media, like we discuss, I guess video games, it's, you know, they were way too far away, but movies and television, the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see a lot move to the public domain. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think a, a lot of that medium comes from, uh, especially like uh, older literature, you know, like things like Sherlock, the characters like Sherlock Holmes and, you know, Cthulhu and Lovecraftian horrors, like though that type of literature kind of sets uh, themes. I mean, they're, and they're, they're, they become tropes because of, because of their age, right? And and those tropes and themes and creatures and characters, yeah, they're just they become everybody's. I guess I, I kind of I kind of like the concept behind something becoming public domain. I think it makes a lot of sense. Like at 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 some point, art and creativity is kind of it just belongs to the people that it was created for, right? To the the people that are supposed to consume it. Yeah. Yeah, and and in my opinion, now I'm actually very much I'm very much a defender of intellectual property. I as a kid in grade school got several probably two or three other students crying at some point because I argued so aggressively in front of the teacher in the class that they had copied me on like an art project or something. And I just like hated it. So like, I like to the point that I'm a jerk in, in some ways, but it's because I, I really defend intellectual property, but I also completely agree that you can't just trademark something forever from humanity. And to me, honestly, 50 to 75 years, I, I think is fair. I don't think 20 years would be enough, but yeah, 50, I would think kind of sounds like a sweet number if that's what it is. Yeah, so so I agree as well. And I mean, there's a lot of creativity. You brought up Lovecraft, and I look at games like Eternal Darkness for GameCube. Very popular. I know you never played it, but it's based off off Lovecraft. Even um, the the Eldrazi in uh, Magic, Magic the Gathering. Gathering. Yep. One of my one honestly, I know we haven't played for a while, so you might forget. But one of my favorite tribes. I love big beastly beatdown creatures. You know, if Lovecraft wasn't in the public domain, I don't think we'd have that. Even uh, what wasn't that Nick Cage movie that we liked the the Taste of Color or something like that based on Lovecraft? Oh, a Color of Space or yeah, that's color space, very yeah. like cosmic horror. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and that that was a good movie. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to to see where things go with that. <laughs> I, I I just I just love the people just waiting for it and just jumping on like you know that's the case with so many larger uh, ip characters that they're just waiting in the wings as they approach that hopeful that hopeful date i mean again like you say somebody with the with the sway and backing of disney it's nice to know that even disney can't get away with doing whatever the fuck they want you know when it comes to stuff like that it's cool it's cool i i like it there's like a measure of schadenfreude it's almost weird to say like taking pleasure in someone else's pain because you know disney is super uncomfortable losing control of this mickey part of their ip and like they literally do not have any legal control anymore (laughs) so you've got this giant corporation used to beating people down with legal threats and whatnot and one of their biggest ips you know mind you their oldest it one of their oldest is uh you know they can't do anything about it it's out there anybody can do anything with it Set up an outdoor showing of, you know, Mickey's mouse trap right beside Disney World. 
on the biggest screen you can find. Project that fucker onto the the, the castle for all I care. <laughs> That'd be fun. Shaden Freud. Ah. Okay, well, we don't want a four-hour episode, so we want to keep this one tight. So uh, you ready to jump into segment one? Yeah, let's do it. All right, listener, it is time for movie musings. And I don't know if I deleted something in my notes, but somehow there I just have the segment listed as TikTok. I think I accidentally uh, deleted something or didn't finish my thought. But uh, I wanted to discuss TikTok and also the concept of YouTube shorts because this was inspired by multiple content creators I watch complaining that YouTube algorithms are basically changing and much favoring YouTube shorts because they want to compete with TikTok. And I just want to discuss TikTok and shorts and and that whole dynamic. So I tried to do some research on this and it's actually difficult to find articles from mainstream well-known media about this specific topic. I've read a lot of Reddit message boards But I did find one piece of information on a website called Resetera.com, which seems geek and technology based. And there's a person posting there who said that as of January 2nd, 2024, so just a couple days ago, eight out of the 10 top YouTube trending videos were shorts. Eight out of 10. Very recently. And that just, that kind of blew my mind. Like if you had told me to guess, I probably would have said, well, I don't watch a ton of shorts, but you know, they pop up maybe three out of 10, two out of 10, mm-hmm. eight out of 10 shocked me. And it's awkward for me. I'm a very heavy YouTube consumer as I believe you are too. Um, like I probably watch four hours a day at least. And I, I'm not someone who watches shorts, but some of my content creators like into history or that go into deep dive icebergs about like video games and stuff have been making shorts and they're very awkward. Like you can tell they're only making them to try to chase the algorithm, which fuck YouTube chasing the algorithm. I think it's really making that platform start to go downhill. I actually heard about an app this week that you pay $50 a month for And what the app will do is at any given day, it'll tell you what the top 20 YouTube topics are for the algorithm. And it will then give you suggestions for videos to make. So like it'll scan algorithm, like (laughs) uh, camel riding is like third on the top. And it'll make a suggestion top six places to rent a camel in the world. And like the implication is you pay $50 a month to this app. You chase whatever the algorithm is promoting in the moment and you'll make a big YouTube channel, make money. Well, like that's not what I want to see. I want to see content creators create content that they're passionate about in long form. So, so that's just me, but I guess what I want to ask you, Leland, and shut up for a couple minutes here is like, you're, you're much more into TikTok than I am. You, as far as I can tell, you've been a regular viewer of it, user of it for maybe two, three years, something like that. You post a bunch to T-HUD, our mutual friends, um, you know, just funny videos. How did you get on with TikTok? What's your experience been with it? 
Uh, yeah, so I haven't been using it too long. Maybe it has been a couple years now since I've just had the app in an account downloaded, right? And uh, it was—I think it was probably because of because of Emma. I mean, Emma can just get lost in TikTok for literally like hours, consuming just next, 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 right? And, and wow. Like it, it, and I think that's the same. That's the case for like a ton of people, right? Obviously, this this, pl- this platform. I don't I mean I even almost hesitate to call it a social media platform like but I think that's what it's kind of purported to be. I mean I I don't I don't believe a platform like YouTube is a social media platform, right? But again, I, I suppose for those that have no idea what TikTok may or may not be, but it, it it's uh it hosts user submitted videos that I think they the minimum they could be 3 seconds to about 10 minutes long. And honestly, I, f- I feel like this is, is like they TikTok has like almost made history of how influential this I guess okay I'll call it a social media platform from here on but how influential uh, the platform has become in such a short time uh, I think they had their global launch in 2017 just in 2020 it sur- the app surpassed 2 billion downloads uh, worldwide you can find a they call they literally just call them talk like if you're into like book talk or knit talk you'll find like a series of video like a subsection of the platform right to do with with whatever interest you you may have kind of thing right and obviously like any other platform social media platform those like there's trending topics that'll be more popular etc cetera, etc cetera. i think the the biggest thing that well when tiktok started uh, they had first merged with uh, musical musical dot ly in 2017, where they spent a billion dollars to acquire them, and that was a platform that uh, had their users creating basically just lip syncing videos to to music, and I think that that was about it. So like music is a huge proponent of TikTok, or at least I I don't know if that's subsided a little more, but like when it first came out, music was huge because you would just add what they call sounds to your TikTok and you just write in the platform. And it would usually just be like, you know, 15, 20 seconds of a song or whatever. You would see the same sound being used in like hundreds and thousands of different types of video. Like the videos weren't even all pertaining to the same topic. Just the sound was just applicable. And so that was like, you know, like season four of Stranger Things, like Kate Bush was running up that hill. That took the plat. That's one of many examples of taking the that specific platform by storm and had a huge impact on that song billboarding again, right? Uh, getting right. to the top of the charts. And there's been a number of musical artists that attribute TikTok to a huge part of their success and then blowing up, going viral, viral on the platform. Uh, it it it's I mean it also uses an algorithm and it it makes like a for you page. So like any other platform, again, it, it just it shows you what you think you're gonna like and they're usually short form videos that take literally just seconds to consume for some of them. Right. And I know for myself, some of the longer ones, like if it's, if it's longer than like 30 seconds, I will most likely just swipe to the next one. Cause it's like too long. I like, <laughs> like I feel like the app is like training my, my uh, attention span to be shortened, to consume things on, on, on the app. Like, unless it's like, Maybe a creator that I know or something that I'm actually interested in listening to. I'd usually like I'm on it and okay, too long, next, and then something stupid fun. Like currently my for you page is a bunch of workout stuff, 
Baldur's Gate 3 stuff. And like for a while there, it was like wood chopping stuff. <laughs> it was just like jack dudes chopping wood. wood. Chopping. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to ask questions. I think you may have visited other sites that led to that algorithm. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. But so for me, like, you know, like 90% of what I see on there is trash, but sometimes you come across like a really, really funny, really funny video. So I was, I was doing my own little, I actually did some research for this too. And I was just kind of, um, you know, perusing the wiki page and looking through all the, obviously I mean, TikTok has so much controversy with it, like just the the privacy concerns about the app itself, um, the the founding company being uh, uh, from from of Chinese origin, um, et cetera. There's been uh, quite a number of court cases uh, in the U.S. specifically of trying to ban the app. And uh, actually, I found in 2023, in May of 2023, Montana became the first state to ban TikTok on all personal devices. Wow. That was supposed to take effect uh, this month, January of 2024. Immediately after that bill passed, a civil suit from a number of Montanan creators was filed, which was that lawsuit backed and directed by TikTok themselves as well. So I don't think the ban is actually in effect. And I think it's still, as far as I could see, it's still being battled against and not like it hasn't actually taken effect um, because the. I think, you know, the Montana governor or whatever failed to convince a judge of the immediate privacy concerns, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, they've had like, uh, they've been fined for COPPA violations. I mean, much like YouTube, honestly, YouTube has had some of the same concerns. Uh, There's plenty of concerns about, you know, the the spread of hate speech and extremist views just due to kind of a, a, a lack guideline in terms of service as far as what content is allowed, which again, I think is being tightened up. And <laughs> it's also kind of started this, I don't even know if, I don't want to say trend, but like you can do a thing on the platform and it's just called a react. So basically you can react to someone else's video and it'll have like their video side by side with like you looking into your camera, watching it. And it is the stupidest fucking content in I the world. that shit. Like when you watch a React video, it's like somebody literally, like, you know, them watching the video and they're like put their hand to their chin and like nod along to the video. Like it's mm. the fucking low effort oh. content. I mean, and it's it's spurred. It's like what spurred the contra- the SSS Sniper Wolf controversy right now. I don't know if you're familiar with what's going. Very familiar with yeah. that. Actually. So, you know, SS Sniper Wolf uh, is a longtime streamer who's had her own f- plenty of controversy here on which we don't need to get into. But. Uh, she ended up uh, doxing another creator called Jax Films, who's also a very long time YouTube uh, creator who basically made a channel dedicated to reacting to her react videos, trying to point out how <laughs> low effort that type of content is a whole thing. If you want to look at it, please go ahead. It's very interesting. SS the Sniper Wolf seems like a terrible, terrible person just in general. She does. It's, oh, uh, it's just terrible. Uh, listener, I will I will say, sorry, uh, quickly plug Turkey Tom on YouTube. If you look up Turkey Tom plus SS Sniper Wolf, he does a really good deep dive into exactly what Leland's talking about, which, which, which is uh, focused a lot on these reaction videos. And, you know, the stupid thing is, I, I don't know why anybody watches these because like SS Sniper Wolf, you could fast forward and you could go like minutes with her barely doing anything. Just like staring at a screen, <laughs> yeah. and she's gonna make like a ton of money off this. Yeah, it's, and, yeah, and you're exactly. like, "What? Why? No!" 
anyways, continue. Well, I also found uh, some stats. Of a study from 2021 found that 49% of TikTok users bought something that was they saw featured in a video, whether it's an, an actual ad or just uh, what a creator they like. Uh, so it clearly has consumer consumerism uh, influence there. Apparently, 41% of users are between the age of 16 and 24, which is that the Gen Z age range right now? Yeah, that's that's definitely Gen Z. I, I don't know. It's just like it just feels like this. It it, it just blew up, and it, it just it's funny how influential it is for you know a couple generations behind us. But yeah. being of those different, not being in those generations. I think it's very easy to not really realize how influential this singular app can actually be on like a number of issues. Well, I think you need to find something to compare it to. And I actually have this written down uh, as an example, as part of my prep. When we grew up, when I grew up, my parents would occasionally play video games with us. And sometimes they actually quite liked them and would play them for short spurts quite a bit. But they, there would never be an addictive quality for either my mom or my dad, whatever video game it might be. And I think that's because by the time they started playing them as adults, which is when they did, like in their 30s with their kids, their brains had already formed. I have a theory about why TikTok and maybe to a much lesser degree YouTube shorts are popular with Gen Z. And I, I did know, by the way, that it was very popular with Gen Z, obviously, is I think as children, their brains are forming and they're presented with a near unlimited amount of content on a device that takes less than 10 minutes to watch. And an algorithm is trying to present things to them that they actually want to watch. And so what their brains are getting are dopamine boosts and like lots of little dopamine injections. And as they grow into adulthood, their brains are kind of addicted to that in a way. I call it swipe culture, but, you know, it probably has another name, but it's basically like, you know, watch something next, watch something next, you know, watch 20 videos in the time that it would take us to watch one normal video long form. Mm -hmm. I, I really think there's probably something to that. I'd be surprised if some research doesn't come out the next five or 10 years about that. But yeah, Leland, that's, that's one of the reasons why I believe TikTok is so addictive to today's young people. Yeah, you know, it's. I think we. I kind of had mentioned to you when we were um, discussing, and you were putting together the skeleton for the episode. I, I had made a comment uh, about it's. It just seems very cyclical because, you know, for for like our generation, uh, a, an app you, uh, or a platform called Vine used to exist, and it was literally just five second videos on it. And when Vine went bankrupt and tanked a ton of those users moved to YouTube and became YouTubers like the fucking Paul family, like that kind of era of YouTube creators. Right. 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 <laughs> so it's funny. It's just, it's just all coming on like full circle again. It seems like, and maybe vine was just like 25 years ahead of it or 20 years ahead of its time. Right. I think it was, I think it was like, I enjoyed vines, especially I enjoyed like, when someone on YouTube would collate and put together like yeah. 10 minutes compilation, worth of yeah, 10, like 10 minute comp vine compilations. Yes. <laughs> Some of those are pretty fucking hilarious. Yeah. 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 But, but I mean, I, th there could be something to say in that, to say in that, and that I only really wanted to watch them in compilations. 
uh, maybe because I'm more of a long form person. But I think you're right. I, I think that was kind of the canary in the coal mine that this sort of thing was was going to be addictive. And I think uh, something else it leads into, um, like cell phone games. Sure, cell phone doesn't have a ton of power, but you could like do a 16-bit 40-hour RPG on a cell phone with today's power. But, you know, what did people want to play? They want to play Bejeweled or Angry Birds or something like that. I just think the human psyche, the, the human brain would rather have a bunch of small doses of dopamine and reward rather than one large dose that they have to wait for, you know, wait 10, 15 minutes to, to kind of get that. I, I think it's concerning because I think that short videos like that, first of all, there's like not a lot of nuance that you can put into those videos. I think there's a feeling or like a temptation to just, create stupid shit like slapstick comedy and call it a day Mm -hmm. because like what else are you gonna do other than just stupid short stuff like you can't do a lot with a 10 minute cap i i I think you have to be obviously have to be very succinct and and yeah i don't know how (laughs) like how 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 much profound content you know and like meaningful content and obviously that that term is <laughs> very subjective to to the consumer but but i mean you, you know what you know what i mean um I, I mean plenty of like news outlets use the platform too right and you you can find like cb like a cbc news clip uh, right from uh, from broadcast there so it's not just like individual you know joe blow creators kind of stuff um that utilize platforms like i mean it's just, again it's the same as youtube like if you want to watch a newscast you can pull up cbc news on youtube and you right that's you can consume your your news media from there yeah. one of my favorite things going on right now uh on tiktok is about the mandela effect right obviously the mandela effect is something like a phenomenon where uh, a a large populace believes something to be true where it actually was in fact something else or proven to be something else. like Berenstein bears versus Berenstain bears, right? Classic example of the Mandela effect. Well, there's a creator. I was trying to find her name. I cannot find the creator uh, to credit, unfortunately. I was just looking for her now, but she's been like diving into like commonly known Mandela effect things. Like uh, something she recently uh, uncovered was like the Monopoly Man. Does the Mon- do you believe Moby that the does the Monopoly Man have a monocle? Yeah, it, when I imagine him, I imagine him with a monocle. Okay, so a lot of people do, and he, in fact, does not have a monocle. If you pull up a what? picture of the monopoly, so people say this is that impossible. people say that the monopoly man is confused with Mr. Peanut, who does have a monocle. So this creator, she got in touch with uh, a, a, a man who has who has the like the world record or something for the largest monopoly collection. And she actually found a single, like a copy of like a Monopoly Junior that on a single one of the bills, like the $2 bill, had him with a monocle. Wow. I mean, in a way, I I can't call that proof. My mind's blown because, of course, I Googled this because I'm like, what is going on? And you're right. He doesn't have a monocle. This is an existential crisis. Live, listener. Live. I I have succumbed live to the the, the mandela <laughs> effect um okay 
So you're saying, you know, now that I'm in this moment of existential dread, you're saying that TikTok perpetuates these 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 Mandela effects? Uh, no, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that like this platform allows people to I don't know express themselves in, in a bunch of varying ways, and like this woman has decided to take it upon herself to put a lot of energy into trying to like I don't know if she's like purposely trying to like prove or spread that there's like this Mandela effect conspiracy going on but that's also like part of like conspiracy talk or something <laughs> where okay so I I found I found her I believe I found her page I think it's dime lifting on TikTok but another thing that she uncovered and if you search um search Mandela effect fruit of the loom TikTok you'll you'll find this she so she was she and like many other people were convinced that the fruit of the loom logo had at some point a cornucopia in it with the with the fruit and apparently if you go onto like fruit of the looms website and look at like a history of their logos there is no logo that has a cornucopia on it and they have come out and said that they've never had a logo with a cornucopia uh, my my goodness i, I- this is two in a row in the space of five minutes. I seriously need therapy right now. I, I need a psychologist. I'm dying here. I grew up with Fruit of the Loom. And if you were to have told me, like, outside of this discussion, oh, you know, Fruit of the Loom, nice underwear, eh? Too bad it didn't have a horn that held all the the food. I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Did you get some Chinese knockoff? And now, now, ah, So, so, but here's the thing. She found... Apparently, some user sent her an old Fruit of the Loom shirt that had the logo with the cornucopia in the tag, despite Fruit of the Loom themselves saying they never had a logo containing a cornucopia. So, hence, conspiracy. <laughs> Something is going on. This Something is apparently Illuminati. is going on. <laughs> the, the Freemasons have, like, increased recruitment. <laughs> Something is going on, Leland Steele. The- <laughs> Next thing I know, you're going to tell me, like, the Canadian flag doesn't have red. And all these years, I thought it was white and red. I'm going to look it up, and it was, like, white and yellow. Like that like that stupid shirt that nobody could tell if it was, like, gold or green. Yeah, the dress the or whatever. Stripe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dress. It's going to be one of these situations. That That is crazy, though. I don't know what point I was really trying to make bringing that up. But, like, that's – I think this is – like, this type of content is just weird and strange. And you won't – like, it's tough to find it so readily somewhere else, you know? I think the platform, despite its downfalls and, uh, you know, it has a lot of them, obviously, but I think there's a reason why it has been so so popular and as popular as and influential as, as it is and continues to be. Well, one of the questions I had for this, and this, this has been a really good discussion because we've kind of naturally been touching on on most of my points. And so I kind of really only have two left, but one of my points that I do have left is, do you believe that TikTok and perhaps shorts as a whole, the idea of these small things, do you think that's a fad that's going to burn out in a few years? Or do you think that this is now here to stay? I don't, I don't know. At this point, I I would probably lean on the, the side of it staying. I don't think it can possibly maintain uh how popular it is 
but honestly, I don't know if you think, okay, I'm trying to picture it sticking around for the next generation, right? For another generation and wondering how and if it will change much like when you, when you, again, we're kind of, we're comparing it directly to YouTube really right now. When you look at how YouTube has changed, I mean, YouTube itself is also an incredibly influential platform and has changed a number of lives, right? For for its creators, um, like how many people are, you know, have made their dream of creating some type of content and being able to do that full time because of a platform like YouTube that directly compensates its creators, right? A lot. Right, exactly. And then even when you, you, you kind of take a step further back and compare YouTube to a platform like Twitch, which also can support creators, but definitely in very different ways. And the split uh, between that, you know, as far as subscriptions goes, Twitch taking half of a content creator's uh, sub. Like, I, so there's different, there's just, it's so, so funny watching this progression. It just feels like such a natural progression in the, the, the changing and evolution, the change and evolution of these platforms, right? When you, when you just watch it go. And again, I said it's cyclical, but when something works, it sticks around, <laughs> right? And with content now be, I mean, it's been, the content has been at our fingertips for a long time now, right? And I, I just think this is like a natural evolution of the way you are able now to consume that content. Like to me, it just makes sense. I, I think it fills a niche. I, my personal opinion, and I completely agree with you 100% that it's cyclical. My guess, my theory is that the next generation coming up under Gen Z is going to see all these throwaway slapstick, ha ha ha, or weird videos. And they're going to say, look, either we want long form, and they're probably going to create somewhat of a backlash that will promote long form content, because that's what cyclical is, right? You have to go back to the opposite, which would be long form content. But I also think that YouTube, which I've watched virtually since it was founded, the biggest evolution that that platform has done is it's moved from poorly produced homemade videos. Granted, some of them were super entertaining, like the Resident Evil 4 kids, Bentley Brothers, that we all loved in T-Hud. But it's moved to be like much more professional, like where a lot of creators give like what feels like master level thesis uh, discussions, very well produced comedy skits, like the video's good, the sound's good, the writing's good. I think you will probably see that move to TikTok, even though it is 10 minutes or less. I bet you you're going to start to see higher production values. That's interesting because I think the, you know, TikTok itself lets somebody without those skills still make content that still has a chance of blowing up despite it possibly being lower quality, uh, like fucking react content, right? Like again, low effort content that for some reason people like to watch. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I suppose with that type of content, you already need to have some type of platform and some type of viewership, right? But I don't know. I think that I think what you're saying like makes a lot of sense. But I mean, the problem is like that type of content can only suffer on a platform like TikTok. Like, yes, TikTok can't support video essayists, right? And I watch a ton of 
video essay type content on YouTube. Again, that is that and kind of like let's play video game stuff is predominantly the type of YouTube stuff that I I consume. So it, it can it can only suffer on a platform like TikTok. And I think really the for me the problem comes with like this this like the creator you frequent his complaint about YouTube pushing on that type of that format, that style. Because again, that's in YouTube. YouTube is a corporation. It's in their best interest too. It it helps their ad revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, that also by extension helps their consumers. Uh, if YouTube can bring in more more ad revenue, that does get passed down to consumers, or sorry, to creators. But where my my problem is when they start to, you know, how many stories have we heard of uh, users or specific videos kind of getting this shadow ban where they're not removed. They're not strictly removed from the platform, but essentially they are because they're taking out of the algorithm and they don't have a chance of being put in front of people's recommended videos to people. They're pulled out of it um, for whatever reasons. And whoever decides to pull the lever that <laughs> says shadow ban or press the button that's labeled shadow ban on a specific video. I think that's where the problem comes in where YouTube, if, if, and when YouTube starts to do that, so they can push their creators into a different type of content creation that isn't what their platform is built on. Right. Oh, oh, hundred percent. I, I mean, I, in fact, the, the content creators that I'm mentioning that don't like the shorts are, are feeling that way right now, whether that's the reality or not, they're feeling that they've gone from hey, I want to go on this platform and make my own content and get money for it if I find fans to now the corporation YouTube is telling me what type of content I need to make to get fans and to get money. And not just telling me and like, you know, hey, you might want to do this to be successful. But as you said, shadow bans. One interesting development from that is there's a lot of pleas. Now, I don't know how facetious it is because they'll probably earn more money this way, but there's a lot of pleas from the content creators that I watch to say, just fall like join my Patreon. Like if you go to my Patreon, you'll get everything early. Anyways, you'll never have a shadow ban. You'll get an email for every single video I post and you'll get to watch it early. And so that's the major reaction to YouTube that I'm seeing personally at the moment. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it is scary. One of my favorite YouTubers, one of only two that I Patreon, uh, he, his name is the 8-Bit Guy. David Murray is is his actual name. And even though like I don't work on old computers, I just find his content so fascinating. He like repairs old computers, talks about them, programs new games for them and stuff like that. And totally this whole shadow banning, not doing shorts when he knows that's how to make money thing is has actually changed what he's going to do. You know, he's basically moved to Patreon. He's going to program more games and try to sell them. And he's going to do less YouTube videos because he doesn't want to play the YouTube game. It's not his thing. He feels forced into it. Like he doesn't feel like he can do a good movie on like a documentary on fixing a computer or some old computer in 10 minutes or less. So you know, he, he's just kind of changing. And in fact, he's going to go get a full-time job because he says he no longer can afford YouTube full-time. And, and I've heard some crazy things about YouTubers that don't do not do shorts regularly. 
I've heard of revenue falls between 70 and 90%. And that's just from 2022 to 2023. What? And I should have gotten names, even though it doesn't matter just for reference, but it, but eight bit guys, one of those, he said he's had a 90% drop. There's another, there's a famous, uh, I guess, Russian YouTuber, though he doesn't live in Russia anymore. Uh, no fuckers. N N F K R Z. He's, I think he's got like a million and a half followers or something like that. Same thing for him. You know, he's just lost so much revenue and doesn't want to do shorts. He actually, I'm not going to get into a tangent. He had a very scary video yesterday that made me worry about his, his mental health for real. I don't think he was acting, but, 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 but it did directly have to do with this. It had to do with the revenue drop. The fact that he feels YouTube is telling him what to do in addition to all the other shit he's dealing with, not knowing like, you know, where he's going to live the next six months and things like that, because he can't go back to Russia. He's, he's criticized the government, so he can't go back. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, and so he's really struggling with that from a mental health perspective. So yeah, it's, it's scary. You know, I, I've got some, like there are some YouTubers that I watch that are so well funded by Patreon. that it's not a problem. And they're like, fuck shorts fuck TikTok. I'm not going to do any of that stuff because, because I'm already supported by Patreon. Right. In fact, I actually, even though I think this was a, a risk, it worked out for him. The TV show survivor listener. I know it's not usually what we discuss, but it's, it's a family thing from the first season for my family. We always watch them and there's a really good podcast that's put on YouTube that I watch after every Survivor episode. They deep dive, analyze what happens. And from the very beginning, that guy's like, my channel is not going to be monetized, but I want to do this as a full-time job and be supported by Patreon. So I owe YouTube or any other content platform nothing. If YouTube were to cut me off, I simply tell my Patreons where to follow me. They can, you know, pay the same amount of money and just find me on a new lesser known video hosting site. And right now, that guy's looking like a genius. His name's Wesley. Wesley, if you're out there, you're looking like a genius. Because that guy has basically insured himself against these dirty games from YouTube. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is uh, smart. I mean, I think that that's the – that those are the risks, I guess, when you when you go to full-time uh, content creation. And, like, you're – because if you're a YouTube creator and you're living off of the money you make from YouTube – tech i mean almost like <laughs> youtube is your bot like your your paycheck comes from youtube essentially you're yeah. you are youtube's employee for lack of a better term that's what it is if that if so so if you and that's it obviously if you don't have other means of of, rend- of revenue through other platforms and obviously like patreon i, I mean i i think patreon is a great platform certainly patreon takes their cut but it's not like they're taking half of what you're pledging to a creator or anything like that it is, it is a wonder that Patreon can really keep the doors open to pay their bills, uh, to be to be frank. And I, I actually, I think with Patreon, I've heard they have like a, man, what is, I wish I had looked into it, but obviously this is off the cuff. But I I thought I saw some things about them having like a free, like a, a free, basically a $0 pledge kind of thing you can put to yes. creators or some type of like free pledge that's that some creators have said has helped them grow somehow. I don't really know the particulars of it, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I have heard of that. I haven't looked into it. I don't know if it's ad supported or or anything like that. 
but yes, I, I have heard of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. Like, uh, I don't know, you know, with, with what Patreon's skimming off you and me, they should be the new Microsoft, but <laughs> somehow they're not. <laughs> That's right. Listener, another Patreon joke. <laughs> oh yes, year. you can donate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see where these platforms go in the next few years. I think there's so much potential for TikTok and YouTube, particularly because of how fast all the mainstream cut the cord streaming services like Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon now, they're going ads. And if you don't want ads, it's an additional $3 per month for Prime. All these like streaming services are suddenly like, there's no more novelty of cutting the cord. We're your new cable and we're going to treat you like it. Prices go stratospheric. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so there's going to be space for places. I've even heard of um, uh, Legal Legal. He, he actually helped develop, help found, I think it's called Nebula, which yeah. is a yep. streaming service. And, and that works under different you know, ways where it's almost like a combination of Patreon and a streaming service. Right. There's some, some interesting things that they're doing. I, I think legal legal will actually announce that it's like 350 bucks, but you can buy like a one time lifetime unlimited membership to Nebula. I don't know how that's sustainable, hmm. but I know they're releasing something like that. My point is, my point is, is that I think we're going to see an evolution of, of TikTok and YouTube as well. I know we're getting a little away from shorts here, but they're going to fill a niche when people are no longer willing to spend $40 a month just on Netflix and another 30 on Disney plus and another 35 on Amazon prime. Like it, it, it's getting ridiculous and I am about to quit Netflix. I am so close, but I, I won't get into that. But, but the reason for that is because I'm very privileged in that my very good friend, Joe, who I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, spent the pandemic setting up his own fucking uh, streaming service that runs off his own dedicated server. And I'm one of the I'm few people other than his like four core family members that has access to that. But people are going to have to find creative solutions. Um, and I hope TikTok and YouTube don't go the way of the dodo bird by missing out on this wave. My point is, as streaming gets more expensive, they have a potential niche. Okay, okay. I can see that. Yeah, I I mean, uh, I watch a number of YouTube creators that, yes, also, they are, they're always like, hey, look, if you want more, there's some Nebula-specific content that we, like, there's more to this. If you wanted the extended video and they're, you know, they're pushing the Nebula platform, I have no idea how popular it is. I don't even know what like the UI of it looks like. I've never even touched it before. But YouTube has ne has needed a direct competition forever, forever. Yes. Because yes. YouTube has been able to get away with whatever the fuck they want because they're the only alternative for these content creators. Absolutely. It's funny though, like yeah, this Nebula, again, I don't really know anything about it, but you say like if it's like more of this hybrid model, Patreon, YouTube kind of model-ish, right? that like even that isn't direct competition because like it's technically a different model and it's being adjusted to be different and i and i assume right to be more enticing 
to consumers to come over to this new platform. So it is just kind of, I find, I think it's a little ironic that even like the closest thing to a competitor that, you know, is maybe being developed and and pushed and, and trying to be grown isn't really a direct competition because it works differently. Well, yeah. And to be honest, I think that's Nebula's saving grace because how are we finding out about Nebula other than content creators on YouTube promoting (laughs) Nebula in their videos? (laughs) If YouTube honestly was afraid, they would have capped that and they could have like that. Mm -hmm. Boom. Done. Don't mention Nebula. You're not allowed to, you know, pledge any other streaming services there. So, you know, maybe uh, YouTube's kind of become like the fat old dinosaur that just is arrogant and thinks they can never be challenged after all these years. So yeah, promote your little nebula. You'll never get big. You'll never be a challenge <laughs> to us. But uh, yeah, famous last word. Exactly. That's only going to bite them in the ass. Like that's the only thing that could happen. If there's any type of cosmic karma, that's the only thing that could ever happen. <laughs> I, I, you know what? And I think there's a chance it will. I'll tell you this, if, if I suddenly can't, cause like that, that Nebula offer right now, I don't know how long it's going to last lifetime for probably 350 bucks Americans, so about 450 Canadian. If someone were to drop 500 bucks on me, I came into a little bit of money somehow. I, I would honestly be one of the first things I would look up. Cause if you're going to tell me I'm going to get lifetime on a service like YouTube or streaming service for 450 bucks. That's pretty enticing to me. And and I'm hoping they go Star Citizen. They go, uh, you know, Cloud Imperium Games or whatever the fuck it's called. Did I get that right? Or yeah, CIG. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, CIG, where it's like lifetime insurance only for these initial backers. Okay, <laughs> well, no, they just get a different lifetime insurance. We, we have another <laughs> lifetime insurance. So then maybe I can buy that lifetime subscription that Legal Eagle says is limited time only like, you know, six months from now, 12 months from yeah. now. I mean, you can get everything for $48,000. <laughs> yes, listener, I, I sent a screenshot to to our friend, including Leland, yesterday about uh, the affordable options for Star Citizens, such as $48,000 US, 48, not 4,800, 48,000 to buy this certain armada, plus apparently a rifle that, like, it says, like, yeah, you get 175 ships. Plus this rifle that's being developed it must be a hell of a gun. But um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny how that is making the rounds uh, everywhere. Like, because, because it's funny though, like that pack, um, I don't know that specific pack, but like that type of offering is not new. I, I'm confused of how that pack is visible because before offerings like that, you've had, you would have had to already have paid in a certain X amount of dollars before you're even able to see the ability to buy the higher valued game packages. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, $48,000 for every single asset in the game or whatever it is, like ridiculous, just ridic- ridiculous. And it doesn't help CIG's, you know, uh, public public persona to offer packages like that. It does not help them at all. People that already want to call Star Citizen a scam jump on stuff like that. Like, they're shooting themselves in their foot offering that stuff, right? It's weird because it, like, it appears greedy, but it's also not. Like, like it's very expensive, but if you were to tell me, like, some rich guy, multimillionaire, 
also known as apparently the entire German space sim community. Um, <laughs> it's like, it, it, you know what? And, and we've talked about this before in the podcast. I haven't played a lot of Star Citizen. I really got to get more into it. But when my computer got broken, it got memory wiped. So I got to reinstall it. It is ridiculously fun when I play it. Janky as it is, pre-alpha. It It is fun. And so I could see someone who pours time into that. And I don't think Star Citizen's going away, by the way. I think it's going to become a meme because it'll take like 20 years to get to a good space, but it'll get there. And I, I dare I say, over a few decades, you probably can get $48,000 of entertainment value from that. <laughs> I, I, I think you could. Maybe 25 years. You play the game pretty regularly, 25 years. You want to do mining and piracy and explore everything. Yeah, I... I mean, I think I've said on the podcast before that I've spent probably about at this point $6,000 on World of Warships. So that's like, I don't know, one-sixth is completely ridiculous. But if you were to tell me, like if someone were to insult me about those purchases, I would say, well, I do play 90% of my ships. I put more time into that game than any other time I've ever played. It comes from my entertainment budget, so I'm spending money on that instead of other entertainment I otherwise would have bought. I don't feel ashamed saying that publicly on the podcast. I feel I got the value. Well, that I mean, that's good. Then I mean, if if it's worth it, again, that's what consumerism is. Like the, every consumer puts their own individual value on whatever it is they're purchasing and spending their money on. I don't know what this. I don't know who this package really is for. I've I've seen people say that it's for. Uh, you know, those long-term backers that over the course of like 12 years of development may have put already put in almost that much. And that package itself, um, you know, they spent like a few hundred or a couple thousand more on top of what they are, you know, if they melted all their ships and got store credit, they'd have like 40 grand worth of credit. And then they can get ships that aren't actually offered that were limited offers. What I don't know. Because I don't know every, I don't obviously have this itemized list of what is available in that package. And we're definitely veering off a tangent here. Yes, yes. Us talking Star Citizen, it just it, it just takes off. It just takes off. I'll tell you, maybe near the end of uh, 2024, we can do a revisit segment on Star Citizen. Because apparently, the road to 4.0 is like Q3 of this year. Which with the 4.0 up patch comes Pyro, apparently. Which is the new, the new Lawless system. So there's a lot of content that's supposed to be coming out for 2024. 2024 is shaping up to be a banger year for Star Citizen when they're going to get their server server meshing up and running, apparently, which is supposed to make the game run oodles better, right, for everybody, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we can revisit it uh, later, like late 2024. All right, listener. You will not hear from Leland and I about Star Citizen for most of the rest of this year. <laughs> we promise. I am certain <laughs> it will not come up somehow, listener. Listen to the authenticity in my voice on the chances of that. Um, <laughs> but anyways, to to escape this tangent, I don't have much for uh, for, for TikTok versus shorts other than what we said. Um, any more discussion on your end? Um, I don't know. Just the kind of the one question I have is like, is YouTube doing this because they're seeing TikTok success and in those formats or because they are actually losing users to this platform? Like, you know, 
Do you understand the difference I'm trying to? Yes. Yes. Like, what is it? That's a fantastic question. And to be honest, I don't know. But I would say there's only really two plausible options. Number one, like you said, they're they're losing people to TikTok. Number two is just pure greed. They just think this is going to stoke the fires, you know, like a an old furnace that burns coal. You got to poke the coals every once in a while, get that heat back and that oxygen flowing that somehow shorts are going to reinvigorate YouTube. I don't like them. There's no one that produces shorts that I watch regularly, even almost Friday, the comedy troupe introduced by my brother to T-HUD. Um, I like their long form stuff, but their shorts don't just don't do it for me. Yeah, I'm I'm just not really a shorts person. And I think it's because I'm just a little bit too old for that. At least that's the plausible excuse that I try to use. So so my personal hope is that long form content, as you say, it's cyclical, that that it rebounds. Um, but as far as why YouTube is pushing shorts, obviously it's because of TikTok, but whether it's because they're losing people or they're just greedy, I don't know. Do you have an opinion yourself on that? I assume it's just the greed. Like uh, YouTube is not the only platform that tried to implement something that was mirroring what TikTok is offering. Facebook did it. Instagram did it. Twitter tried to do it. They're all doing it. Like they're all just trying. So yes, I I would. Yeah. Assur- assuredly, at least 50% of that decision is based in greed. So whether or not they're actually are hemorrhaging users, hemorrhaging users, like that still is kind of greed based anyways, because they're Again, they need to make money to 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 be a corporation, et cetera. So that's what it, I, yeah, of course, that's what it's going to boil down to. But I don't know. I would just be like, I would be very interested in seeing some numbers from like 2023 about user, overall user user dip for YouTube or growth or whatever. I, I'd be interested in seeing some of those numbers for sure. Well, if I ever find those numbers or come across those numbers, I will bring it up in a banter segment. Beauty. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to crazy about cardboard. Kicking off 2024 with a bit of bits, a few bits of paper, <laughs> a fistful of paper, <laughs> a, f- a fistful of meeples. <laughs> keep those meeples close <laughs> when I need them. So we kind of, uh, when we had our year end wrap up with Ghost Marty, we may, I mean, we made like a semi resolution to, to, to put in the effort to, which I feel like we say every year, but. Yeah. That's how resolutions go. You, you say the same resolution for five years. <laughs> I, I, I I am committed both for the podcast and because like I really enjoyed our Stardew Valley run through. Yeah, that was fun. I miss it. I miss our board games. And so sorry, I'm stealing some of your thunder here. Not at all. Listener, I mean, obviously I'm I'm the producer. I put together the the skeletons and I bounce ideas off Leland and he helps collaborate, but one of the things we thought about doing uh, for the segment was, okay, so we've said we have this, you know, desire to play more games together this year. And I thought, well, I'm not the board game expert here. That's Leland. Why doesn't Leland look through his mighty collection and come up with some examples that he would hope to play with us this year? And so I guess I would uh, ask you, Leland, uh, were you able to find, I don't know, a few games that kind of stick out to you? Yes, I uh, I have a number of games that sit on my shelf of shame uh, that have been unplayed. So I got a I got a list of five. If we go run long, we can sh- cut it down into the top three. But two two of which uh, two of the top three at least are ones that I have yet to play and and think that you would enjoy. Oh, 
Excellent. So the first one I have is uh, Thunder Road Vendetta, developed by Restoration Games. And Restoration Games, they their shtick is they take older games and revamp them, revitalize them. Uh, they repu- they get the rights to them, they republish them, they tweak them to kind of update them to you know the the current quote unquote standards of mechanisms that we see in games these days. Thunder Road Vendetta is based on the 1986 version of Thunder Road. And essentially it's Death Race. That's what you're playing. Oh, nice. So the the map itself is you you start out the map and essentially it's like a roadway, right? With with um hazards like mud and ha- and hazard tiles that you'll flip over when you encounter them. But it, uh, the map is like a grid of chevrons, of kind of offset chevrons essentially. So when you're moving your your it's through selecting dice. Uh, so at the end of beginning of every round or every turn, all the players roll their dice and then you can assign dice to your fleet of vehicles and they'll move equal to the number of pips on the die that you assign to it. So, so your fleet is a, you get a small, medium and a large vehicle and it's, it's a race. Either the first person to get to the end of the map uh, wins or the last person standing as all the vehicles of course are equipped with weaponry of which you can attempt to shoot and bash into your opponents like there's like a bashing mechanic where if you move onto the an occupied tile you roll the bash die and the and the, and the direction die and you see who gets knocked in which direction <laughs> it just seems very fun so and, and interesting. So I picked this up at Origins uh, this year, uh, June of 2020. Sorry, last year now, June of 2023. So this actually is a pretty recent game as far as this list goes. This is like the most, the newest game. The base gameplay is two to four. I think I have, I bought an expansion with it. I don't know what it is because <laughs> there was like a, a deal at the booth and I was like, <laughs> all right, just give it to me. So I, I don't know what it actually does. Congratulations, you own Monopoly Go. <laughs> with the monocled <laughs> Monopoly Man. <laughs> One of only two IPs that had the proper, it was the proper thing to have the mono- monocle, no matter what anybody says. Uh, but that, that sounds amazing. It's, it looks really fun. Um, the, the board itself, so you start with like three pieces of the board. So like a leftmost, a middle, and a rightmost piece, right? And as the, so, so when uh, the first card gets to the end of the rightmost board, you add a new section to it and you remove the leftmost board. So the board grows, but also stays the same. So it, it just changes, right? As if you, cause it's a race. So this is the road that you're racing down. Any car left on that leftmost board when it gets removed is eliminated from the game. So you want to be moving all of your vehicles because you want obviously the best chance to oh, stay in the game. Yeah. So it seems really, it seems really cool. It's really interesting. Your cars will take damage and you'll, You'll like grab a random damage tile to see what is damaged on your car and stuff and how it affects you. There's a thing called a command board, which once per round, you can spend a die to do a certain action. Like everybody also gets, can call in like a, an attack helicopter, which pull, comes down onto the board and can shoot it. Like it look, it's really a cool. Friggin airstrike in a <laughs> board game. This is amazing. It seems really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think uh, you would really definitely dig this and it's just like fun, stupid. Pick. There's not, doesn't seem like there's much strategy, but it's just like, have a good time, beer and pretzel kind of game. Well, you're not mentioning one thing which is important, which is that the much less violent downforce racing game is already T-HUD favorite for UI Ghost Martina friends. And that is another Restoration Games product. Well, okay. Like, 
goodness, man, you already have icing on the cake. You don't need to slather more on top. <laughs> like I'm, I'm already excited for this. And you're telling me it's like downforce, which we all enjoy or made by the same company at least, except, you know, if you tell me I've downforce, but I have three vehicles, I can shoot people with them. And it's like <laughs> much more of a competition. And I have an airstrike. Where was my airstrike in downforce? I don't think I've ever won that game. I want an Apache helicopter. <laughs> well, now you got it, buddy. I really like what Restoration Games uh, does. I've every product I've purchased from them, I've just been so incredibly happy with. I, for me, I've never played a miss from them. So yeah, this was like an easy buy at the, as soon as I saw this at that booth, Restoration Games booth in, in Orange. Like this is easy buy. And uh, so as we're, we're recording this, actually the site Board Game Geek is down for maintenance. So I unfortunately don't have uh the designers readily like right in front of me but i know this game uh which i think a lot of restoration games uh products has like a like a group of designers so there's like a list i think it was like four or five uh different people that are attributed to helping design this game and unfortunately i won't have designers for the rest of the games on my list which kind of sucks because i do like to give credit where uh where it's due but if it comes back up i'll update it maybe i'll update it i'll update it in post so you'll hear a post Leland attributing to some designers for this game. So Thunder Road Vendetta designers, Dave Chalker, Brett Myers, Noah Cohen, Rob Davio, Justin D. Jacobson, Jim Kiefer, and Brian Neff. I like it when you do something in post. And I mean, I'll say this, like hopefully to play these games and to actually make us commit to do it. When we play them, listener, we will review them on an upcoming podcast. Yeah, I can dig it. I dig it. All right, hit me with another one. All right, this is one uh, that I know you'll be interested in playing, but this is Sid Meier's Civilization A New Dawn. Wow. Sid Meier's Civilization A New Dawn was designed by James Niffen. There is, so the Sid Meier's Civilization does exist as a board game. This is a different... Uh, a different game. I didn't know that. From what I understand, it's uh, maybe a little like a boiled down, like shorter experience. Um, trying to give you like Civ feels in you know a reasonable amount of time. From what I understand, again, I haven't played just Sid Meier's Civilization, the board game, but I've had a new dawn for a number of years and just have never had a chance to get it to the table. And it seems it seems really interesting. So it has like a modular map set up. So you can play a different, I think there's four or five different map variations it gives in the game that you can set up depending on player count and how advanced you'd like the map to be, I believe. But essentially, like, you know, everyone picks a picks a, a, a group, a civilization to, to play. And then the main, the driving mechanism of, of the play is this focus bar. And it's like a five slot bar that you put your, you fill with focus cards. So you're going to have five focus cards. And on your turn, you'll choose one of the focus cards to activate. So say you picked the science card in slot three, you do what the card says and you take advantage of the position of it. And then it moves to the leftmost slot all the way to slot one and the cards behind it move ahead. So they're essentially upgrading in value, increasing in value for future plays, for future turns, for future moves. Uh, because the the location and the slot number will often uh, attribute to the power of the ability. So if you can wait longer to play, say to play that science, if I could have waited, maybe played a couple things before it and get it to slot five, it would be more impactful and, and be a power, a more powerful action. 
So the the five cards, which I think Moby, you'll certainly be familiar with, uh, having been a you know being a big fan of the video game. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, you have the culture <laughs> card, which culture. Okay. It allows players to basically place their control tokens on terrain spaces. So I had said, I think I said that each slot on your focus bar also uh, has a, a terrain type associated with it. So the lower number of the slot, like grasslands, is attributed to slot one on your focus bar because it's the easiest thing to get into to to take over essentially so if you have culture all the way in slot five and you're taking that culture action in slot five then that allows you to um, place your influence and take your put your control tokens on say a mountain region so that's how the positioning affects culture of course have science which allows uh, players to advance their tech dials which in turn will let you upgrade those focus cards for additional effects. So you can swap out your base focus cards for more powerful focus cards. And the way that, you know, the way the slot affects science is if you have a slot for science, then you're moving your dial four ticks. And if it, you know, if the dial reaches a certain spot, you're, you're advancing up the tech levels, essentially. Uh, you have economy, of course, which allows players to advance uh, caravans, which kind of interact with other cities you acquire trade tokens that, uh, and those trade tokens, you can put them on your focus cards to enhance those effects. Industry, which lets the players build wonders and uh, set up new cities, which expand you know further into the map. And again, that's based on the focus slot. So if you have a, a slot two industry move, you can expand and put a city on uh, a space two hexes from where you control, somewhere you control. So like if you, again, can get that to slot five, you can go even further with your influence and spread your city and put it like five spaces away from you. And then finally, of course, uh, it, it is a 4X game. You have military, which fighting, obviously. So the, you know, the map is populated with barbarians. And then, of course, you have the other players at the table that you contend with. And basically, the, the slot number on that will add to your military value where when both players will have basically a roll-off and compare their values. So... Seems like very simple combat uh, mechanics, but I know you're definitely a fan of Civ, and I would I want to try this one. It plays two to four players. Yeah, I okay. So both both of those first two games you brought up, bang on, like really really good suggestions. What you're telling me, just how the mechanics work of this Civ game, excite me. You can maybe hear that in my voice. Like as soon as you said, like okay, the culture token, it does this. I'm like, okay, you're right. It does that in the video game. Same goes for economy, building, military. I'd be very excited to see it. Even when you told me how the dial goes, um, you know, how you slowly accrue science in a circular dial. And then when you hit the top again, that's how it works in the game. It's literally a circular dial. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. So that's, that is really sweet. So great, great choice. Definitely will do it. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's other things too. Obviously, that was very simple. There's like an event style um, that affects the whole map uh, as you're playing as well. Uh, yeah. So those are two that I have never, I have not played, and I, I obviously I want to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My next one, we kind of sh- we shift gears a little bit. So the next three are kind of three of some of like my top, like they're first probably in my top ten right now. And I don't know. I've certainly mentioned before on the show, like the way I judge my top board games like it's always it's essentially always a rotation and really it's kind of like what i'm playing a lot at the time very easily will put itself into my top 10 rotation so take that with a grain of salt but this is a game called cryptid 
and it's a deduction game where you, you play a, a cryptozoologist kind of looking for the den of, of a cryptid. Cryptid was designed by Hal Duncan and Ruth Vivers. So, so it ha- also has a modular map, kind of similar to, to Civ. And essentially, like it comes with a little stack of cards that you just draw a card and it'll give you the map setup. And what the map has is a bunch of, it has a different, a a few different features. And so like, they're just kind of very generalized features like bear territory and cougar territory. There's terrain types like grassland and swamp and and like, and plains. There's uh, structures that you put on there, like a blue tent or, uh, or a white pillar. And every player at the table has one statement about the location of the den. So you keep that secret to yourself and you're competing to try to deduce the proper hex space on the map of where the den is. So on your turn, you can do like one of two things. You, you can ask somebody, any of the, of the players at the turn at the table uh, about a feature. Like if you say, okay, I'm going to ask you, Moby, is do you know if it's next to like a bear territory? And depending on your yes or no, you would put a, like a cube or a cylinder. So the map fills up with these shapes. And as you look at it, you can be like, okay, so that cylinder, that's a true statement. So it's close to a bear, but it's not on a mountain, but it's adjacent to a swamp. So you're slowly honing in on the single space on the map that all the clues together point to. It's really fun. Uh, Plays three to five players. It could be very thinky, though. Like, it could be a very quiet game because everyone's trying to, like, oh, boy, okay, this is a no. Okay, looking at what they have, okay, that's a yes. That's a no. What do I ask? How, what do, how, how do I do this? And the first player to find the den wins. It sounds really interesting because it sounds like it's almost completely based off, like, deductive logic. 100%, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, eliminating certain things, focusing in on things. In a way, in a loose way, I feel that it at least reminds me of Clue when you're trying to deduce who, where, with what weapon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I and and I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that personally. So I think that could be fun. I definitely like this one. I, I this is one of those games that it's not for everybody, right? Like this is not. I wouldn't recommend this to every single group. Obviously, if you don't like deduction style games you're not going to like this one because as you say it's like pure deduction there's no a a lot of deduction games and social well social deduction games have bluffing and negotiation this doesn't have anything like that right this is definitely not a social deduction game so if you if you're drawn to deduction games but like the social aspects most from those types of games this game will lack that element for you yeah and you know you're right about that. And I'm just thinking of our personal group of mutual friends. Um, and this is not speaking at all to women in general, a listener hear that, but the particular wives and girlfriends, Emma may be okay with a game like that, but I mean, you know who I'm talking about the other wives and girlfriends in our group. I don't think that would be a game they would particularly enjoy, especially when you're saying it's not so much social as just like, pure logic and it gets quiet so yeah i think that would almost be something like you my my brother ghost marty play together something like that yeah yeah i agree and and i like it's it's definitely like more cerebral as far as deduction goes but it's not 
unapproachable. And there are two, there's kind of two different stacks. So you can, you can play with like more advanced maps, which have, uh, I think two more features, which, you know, simply adding a feature or two into the, an, an array of possibilities, right. Kind of exponentially boosts the, the possible, the potential spaces that it can be right. And the different combinations of clues that you'd have to put together. So you can, you get a lot from adding a little, right. Which I, which is a cool design, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really do think that's a cool design. And what I like about that is you're right. It's a complete change of pace from the first two games you suggested, which are kind of almost like Hollywood and video game thematic to them. And this kind of almost plays off the human's brain's natural inclination to enjoy logic, to, to enjoy focusing in on something. So yeah, good, good choice. Good choice. All right. Well, we're kind of ripping through these. So I'll, I'll finish out with my two more. These, these, the last two are, are kind of similar. The next one, actually, I'm looking at it. It is also a 2023 version of this game, but it is Alhambra Red Palace designed by Dirk Hen, specifically Red Palace. So the game Alhambra is not new. It's definitely been around for a while. Like it was one of those first games that when I got into the hobby, I was looking at and wanted to pick up, but just never did. So this particular version takes the base game and just adds a couple different elements to it. So it it changes some of the gameplay, but it's essentially base Alhambra. And you can just play base Alhambra with this version. It comes with um, the scoring cards and some additional buildings that you would need to, to kind of play just the original rule set. But essentially... You are building your Alhambra, which is just gonna a, a collection of tiles that you're you're putting together that each have a come with a specific building, and there's I think five or six different building types. So it's a tile land game with a uh, majority collection because you want your score off of having the most of each building. So there's that aspect, and the also the the market aspect, the currency. There's three ty- three colors of currency, and the deck of money cards has, I think they're one to nine. One of the things on your turn is you can just basically pick up one of the money cards from the display. There's you know four cards up on display. If you see the blue nine, you can be like, okay, my turn is just to take this blue nine into my hand. As the buildings come down, you kind of see the three that are out there available for purchase, and then you see the three more kind of waiting to come and populate, right? So you can look at the values of the ones that are going to show up. You don't know which currency they're going to get slotted into because that happens when, you know, buildings get bought. Actually, I think it's four buildings out in the array. So there's four currency colors. I'm not three. So like if someone buys the, you know, the gold building, the next one in line will go to that building. So you might have the blue nine and that building has a nine cost on it, but if it goes to the gold nine, you don't, you're at your SOL because you don't have the money for it. Um, the other aspect of purchasing buildings is you can overpay. So if you have an eight and a two, so that's a combined 10 for that nine gold building that came out, you can overpay for it. No problem. You don't get any change, but you still acquire that tile. If you are able to pay exactly the currency depicted on the tile, the number, if you have that gold nine, you can buy that nine cost gold building, and then you get an extra action. So you can chain actions potentially, right? And I mean, you're just building your Alhambra. The, the, the tiles themselves have walls. So you score points for your outer wall. 
in Red Palace, it comes with um, guards. So some tiles will have a guard symbol on it where you put the guard right on the wall. At the end of the game, the guards uh, along your outer wall are worth points, depending on how many guards are used throughout the game. The guard array comes with four different powers, where if you're spending guards, you can do different special abilities, which is how the guards increase in value. So, sorry, is, so when, apologies if I missed this, you're talking about placing guards and stuff like that. Is there combat in this game, or the guards just basically like a building that's part of your Alhambra? Yeah, essentially, they just are associated with a particular tile there's you're not attacking each other you're just building your own kind of display there's the the player interaction comes from the purchasing of buildings and predicting like so i mean i bought this for emma for for christmas this year and we've played it a ton since christmas um she grew up playing alhambra with her with her family i thought this was a nice change on that and we both really like it we play it's it's pretty good at two player with two players it plays two to six at two you have a third like kind of dummy player his name's dirk but we call him dick because he's an asshole (laughs) throughout the round their scoring cards you tuck into the money deck so as the deck gets depleted when the first card comes up you stop you score and then you continue then the second card comes up and then you go until the buildings go and then you score three times right a third time so dirk gets his own buildings every time you score so he he attributes to the set collection so you have to compare your majority to him as well yeah he's a dick he's a dick because we've had sounds like a dick we've had a lot of games where we we will because you randomly pull the building chits assigned to the land tiles out of a bag right so every game that nine cost tile which has two walls on it it might it could have any number of any type of building on it whatever you pull out right game to game so that is always very, there's lot, lots of variability in the setup and how the game plays out. But we've had a number of times where we've randomly pulled out his six buildings and like four of them are like the white building. And we have no hope of beating him in majority, right? Because there's like nine of every building or something. Like <laughs> It's like the revenge of chat GPT, mm-hmm. just in board game format. <laughs> it's like dummy NPC who somehow wins. That's hilarious. So Alhambra was put out by uh, Queen Games. And again, I don't have the designers right in front of me, unfortunately, but <laughs> I'll have added them in post by now. So that's like, if you like, if you like tile placement, I mean, again, the Alhambra is, is an old game, um, at least a, a decade, probably more like 15 years old at this point, but it, I really liked it. And I, I'm glad that I got to, I'm glad this version exists because I think this version is like for people like me, like it just never picked up Alhambra, always wanted to, but here's a new quote unquote updated version that I can still enjoy both versions of. Awesome. All right, you had one more, right? One more, yeah. So sticking with kind of the 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 tile placement theme. Did you ever play Azul? Oof. It it's ringing a bell, but I honestly can't say for sure. If so, it'd be like many years ago, like during the pandemic or before. Okay. Well, uh the original Azul is like much beloved. It's a, it's a great game. So every every few years since its release, they they've put out like an, an another version of it. There was Azul, and then there was Azul um, stained glass or Sinatra glass or something, and then the third one was Azul Summer Pavilion, I think it was called. So the fourth one in that line, um, I think four, is Azul Queen's Garden, and I'm a big fan of the games in general, like all all of them, except number two. I think number two, a lot of people don't like. Was probably the weakest. Azul Queen's Garden, designed by Michael Kiesling. 
you so in, in Azul, Azul is basically like a tile placement game, and you're like trying to make rows of the different types of tiles and score them the way that the, that they're scored in the game. So in the original Azul, they like ed- being adjacent. So when you place tiles, uh, you you fill up your kind of tile holder area, and then when you fill up a line of tiles, they move over to the board. In Queen's Garden, it, it has a similar mechanism of the way you grab tiles. So when you take a tile, you either take all of one type of tile or all of one color of tile. So you might end up with more tiles than you want because if you only want three, but there's five out there, you have to take everything that's available. So Queen's Garden is like a, kind of a more of advanced version of it because it's, it's one, it, it has hex tiles and not squares like uh, in the in the original Azul, but they also have a symbol on them. And like a, like a, basically the level one is like a tree and then it goes to a bird and then uh, butterfly, I think is the next one. And then orchid. So, but basically it's like one through six uh, in value essentially. So if you can place the like tulip or whatever it is, it's worth more points than placing a tree. But essentially you want to make sets of colors, sets of the different combinations of colors and symbols. I mean, it's very hard to explain not having looked at the board, but the board is very different. You're, you're, the board is hexagonal. Just again, the, that's the huge, the biggest difference to Queen's Garden is everything is a, is a hexagon, uh, which kind of changes the way you lay your and lay your tiles because they can connect in different degrees, basically, compared to a square, right? I don't know. If you're a fan of, of Azul in general and you want something more advanced, like this is the game. I'm not doing it justice explaining it because there's, there's a bunch of nuances in the way that you place. But again, you're going to collect tiles and you put them in your reserve, essentially. Reserve? Reserve. Res- I will reserve. When you want to put them onto your board for scoring, like the the tree is essentially level, uh, worth one, right? So when you're placing a particular symbol, you have to get rid of the same number of symbols, but different colors. So if I want to place a bird, which is two, I'd have to have two birds of different colors. One gets discarded and one will go to my board. If I want to place the, if I want to place the poppy, that's the level four. I need four, either four poppies of different colors or four of the same colored tiles with different symbols on them. So you can do it tiles or matching symbols. I see. So that's kind of how, yeah, so that's how you get placed. So a lot of tiles, like in, in, in all the Azuls, get discarded. It's like you're spending the tiles to place one of them onto your board. Yeah, I, I mean, I played a few board games that have been analogous to that in certain ways. I mean, I think of one of my all-time favorites, Wingspan, can always pay two of one resource to get or two resources to get one that you need you know in this case it's like i want to put out the big poppy i gotta burn four other tiles or three other tiles to make it happen so yeah it's cool it's 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 a it's an oddly pleasing mechanic which makes me want to try that more than anything there's just certain mechanics that are satisfying. Absolutely. And that, I think that's what I get from like the Azul series in, in general. It's just like a satisfaction. I can't play base Azul anymore because uh, Emma is too good at it. And I never win original Azul. Queen's Garden, I can <laughs> compete sometimes, but I usually get stomped. But I, I really like Queen's Garden for how complex it is. It feels like it combines a number of mechanisms from the rest of the series 
to culminate into this. Like it feels like a culmination almost to me. And I really enjoy it. If if you're if anyone out there is familiar with uh, Calico, a lot of the placements in Queen's Garden are very similar to how you will place quilt tiles in Calico. So kind of a comparison there. Awesome. Well, great picks there. Um, I had two honorable mentions, uh, games that neither of them are a surprise at all that I would hope we would play this year because I did mention new games and every single game that you brought to the table was new for every, you know, for others that you play with, even if you played with them, but these two are old games. So 2024, I mean, I, I, unless it can get extended, I believe Emma's here until July, 2024. That's right. Yeah. Unless she knows already, I'd love to teach Emma magic, the gathering, play a three player multiplayer game that somehow goes 40 minutes and ends in a draw. That's on my bucket list for you. <laughs> and then, of course, we've spoken about this last year at some point. And I don't think we've ever played on your new dedicated board game table, which is like an awesome table. But like just a fucking epic HeroScape game. Yes. yes everybody please. we can get involved. Everybody we can get involved, give like 700 base points to everyone. So, you know, oh, man. you, Leland, can build an army of 30 men that are perfectly synchronized or 30 beings i can hire my two dragons and be knocked out in 10 minutes <laughs> that's, that's what, what, what's it N- nilfheim and and uh charos charos those are my two those are my two <laughs> all i need is those whatever points buys me those yes we definitely have oh and then i that. then i gotta get like the the fourth line of foot or something with my remaining <laughs> the four yeah the fourth <laughs> regiment <laughs> whatever <laughs> Ghost Marty's gonna, he'll buy like all of the vampires and then buy like some giant four armed Goliath that he doesn't care about. He won't use that because he only cares about Cyprian zipping around. Cyprian will just run the board. (laughs) Oh, so, so good. We, we, we gotta do it. Uh, Seriously, I will try to hold us to it. I mean, you know, you're five minutes away from me. It's easy enough with you um, and pretty easy with Ghost Marty. I almost dropped a joke with my brother earlier today in our group chat that like, hopefully we'll actually see him this year because it's his birthday today. Right. I'm like, your birthday wish should be to see your friends and then we can play more of these games. Yeah, exactly. And and the last one, I've already mentioned this to you in private. Well, it's two things that are semi-related. I do want to play uh, Twilight Imperium 4 again with Joe now that he's local. Yep. And I would love if somehow, even if it's just sitting on your couch watching it, I'd love to see the raw footage interviews from that Twilight Imperium 4 game we played like four years ago now. I just think it would be hilarious. I don't know if you still have the video. I should. Uh, I think it was uh, It was just recordings. I completely forgot about those. Wow. And I've never seen We didn't do anything with those. How did we not do anything with those? I did, well, that's on us. That But... It was such a cool idea, and I definitely utilized the recording thing. I, I want to see that video so bad. It's like the lost shaft attack video T had filmed in 2007. <laughs> you know, I missed that. Wow. I hope I, I must still have those. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look for them. Because that was such a creative idea you had. But honestly, I'm getting excited here. We talked about probably like eight or nine games that I want to play over the course of this year. Yeah, let's let let's get her done. And when we play them, we'll report back to listener, whether it's in a banter or a whole segment, 
depends on the game, depends on the experience. Let's do it. Yes, absolutely. I TI4 Confessionals right here. <laughs> you found it? I you found, found the MP3. Uh, so it's, it's not a video, it's just audio. It, it says it's only 50 minutes long, so I'll send it to you. It's, <laughs> Please do. I'm probably 14 and a half minutes of it, if my memory's correct. <laughs> so, I remember making confessionals all the time. I'm like, you know, oh, I've got my giant fleet of battleships. There's no way I can lose this game. And then, of course, wah, wah. everyone took wrecks <laughs> my ass. Everyone just left me alone in my big fleet to fly around my local star cluster. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that was great. Wow. Awesome. And the show stuff? That was stuff? fun. That was fun. Yep. Do it. All right. Our website is ttpopcast.com. The TN Podcast on Facebook. TT Podcast on Instagram. I'm Leland underscore Steel on Twitter slash X. And that is who I've been. And I'm Moby. I am not on X. I'm just here. So if you want more of me, just listen to our back catalog. <laughs> <laughs> or or Patreon. You know, if we get a thousand more Patreons, maybe I'll consider doing something special. Hey, um, you, heard it, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> there we go. Well, pleasure as always, Leland. And uh, thank you, listener, for being here. And I will say take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. This has been a Sounds of Steel production. The following are Twilight Imperium 4th Edition Confessionals during our first play of the game back in February of 2018. This is Moby. I am playing in this game a species of sentient expansionist plants. I really don't have much else to say at this moment except I just like talking in this creepy voice that is what I think a sentient evil plant would taste or sound like, not taste like. I'm hungry. I'm dieting. But uh, I really have nothing to say except that Marty is bringing a space dreadnought close to me and it's making me nervous making me molt some of my leaves. So we'll see where the game goes, but uh, I've got a few rich planets around me, and my only thought at this point is to just expand. Spread my seeds. I don't know what's going on. Leland, I screwed up your recording, and I apologize. So this is Moby, and I've returned. The only reason I'm really confessing here is that I had a big uh, build in round two. So what I had is I had an upgrade card that lets me upgrade a cruiser to a dreadnought, which is basically a battleship. That's your biggest, toughest ship in the game, except for your flagship and these death sun things you can't build for forever. So what I did is I exhausted all three planets I owned. That gave me eight points. I spent two points on a cruiser, four points on a dreadnought, two points on four fighters, except I had to self-destruct one fighter because I didn't have enough production capacity. But then I played my card to upgrade one of those two cruisers to a dreadnought. So now my home fleet is sitting with two battleships, one cruiser, three fighters, and I've got two carriers nearby. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty powerful there, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with what the, uh, the plant species is able to build so far as the space-going armada. All right, this is Marty. Uh, this game's going pretty good for me so far. 
I think I might be able to win this thing. I've got a couple couple points already. I don't really know my end game, but I think I'm gonna get a couple more uh one more points this round, one more victory points. So far my army's not super strong, but uh I'm just trying not to make too many enemies. Now I did destroy a whole bunch of listeners uh units and I plan on killing a few more this round with a plague so he's probably not gonna like that but uh you know you have to crack a few eggs or whatever the expression is uh, yeah they're uh they're gonna catch on to me sooner or later I think but hopefully this doesn't go too too bad for me so it's a listener here trying to hold up the most uneasy alliance with Leland right now so he doesn't attack me so I can upgrade my space cannons to fuck his shit up. But I'm pretty sure as I was recording this, I just heard him say he's going to go after me, so I'm going to wipe him out. Okay, Leland here. So, fuck. I got this stupid thing with, with Listener, and I really wanted to drop my flagship down. And I'm, He just came in here. I bet he just recorded and talked about this. And I... I didn't want to trade, exchange any promissory notes because I felt he still had the upper hand and I think he's suspicious. I have, no, I have no plans currently to just attack him, but if I did now, I'm in a good chance to take it, but his retaliatory force is pretty huge. So I'm hoping he goes for Mechatol Rex and if he does and gets wiped out, then I'm going to swoop in and take him out and just enemies, boom, from the game. Because, like, he was one of the assholes that was plotting against me in the whole, like, two weeks up to, uh, two week trash talk up to the fucking game. It's ridiculous. Anyways, I'm sure I'll be back in here soon to relay the outcome. So here's the thing about playing a game with Moby. If he ever makes a deal with you, just take it. He's, like, the most faithful ally you can get. And as soon as you cross him, he will throw the whole game just to try to get you back. And usually, he makes really crappy deals for himself. So, take the deal. Let someone else cross him. Let him run his own game to the ground. Take what he left over. Pretend you feel bad. And you get a really good leg up in any game you play with him. So, Marty's in a pretty good spot right now, unfortunately. Yeah, so this is the, the obligatory... Well, this is Moby again, but this is the obligatory Did I Sell My Soul uh, statement here. So basically I needed a planet that was right by Marty's homeworld. Uh, why is because it had a red icon for hazardous and my secret objective is I need four red planets. That's the fourth. So I will score a victory point, but man, I gave up a minister of war card. Uh, I gave up all my commodities. I left a carrier completely exposed with no fighters or no defense nearby. I then exchanged commodities with him again. And I, th I hope he's predisposed at the center planet because, uh, you know, if he wants to cream me and take back that uh, planet, he can in short order and I'll look like an idiot. I've got a fairly strong fleet. I could really spank him, but, uh, you know, I don't... I don't want to. I really want peace with him, but I don't really have a plan from this point forward, so I just have one more planet to take and then I have no fucking clue what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah, until the next time, we'll see what happens. So, the game state has changed a little bit. 
Basically, Marty was holding the center. He's been weakened, and through some card abilities, I was able to build a War Sun. Now, War Sun's basically a Death Star, so everyone's looking at me. I was in a bit of an alliance with Leland and other listener, I guess. Uh, I think this Death Star kind of screwed me up because now they're all staring at me, so I think it's time to engage uh, total destruction. So I can hear them talking about me. This isn't going to go well. Well, it's uh, Moby again, so no, no more voice uh, done with that for a while. Game is pretty interesting at this point. I basically have done every single thing I planned from the beginning state of the board. I've expanded to a large territory. I have a huge economy. The problem is I don't have anything to do now. Marty's racing ahead in victory points. There's no way I think I can catch him. I have a gigantic war fleet. Uh, Blue Listener is who I actually want to uh, spank here because he launched a surprise attack on me on one of my weaker outlying sectors, but I did have a base there and two planets colonized. He had no ground troops, but he just shellacked my carrier and uh, one of, actually both of the fighters. And so I'm angry. I'm moving huge fleet towards him. Problem is, is destroyers have two movement. They can escape if they want. I think they will. But again, that doesn't change my state and that I have no clue what to do. So hopefully I'll return next time and actually have a plan. Hey, listener. Leland again. So we're about halfway through. We're just taking a food break right now. And I realize I've not been using my faction to its full extent at all. They're, they're, I don't even have the name in front of me, like the Mencath or something. But they're like full, like their abilities are revolved around combat, and I haven't even got to a single combat yet. They got a cool ambush thing, uh, you can pillage from your neighbors. I haven't done any of that, so I'm definitely not playing optimally. But, and I have zero points, so that kind of shows it, I guess. But I'm about to score a secret objective of mine. Uh, I'm going to rip into some of the public objectives that are up. We're just about to get into the uh, level two objectives. So we'll see what they what they are, what they what what type of fruition I can bear from those guys. But uh, yeah, I'm super digging it. I'm so happy with it so far. It's living up to like all the expectations that I've had for ever since I got into this hobby. Man, I'm just happy I picked it up and happy I could get it to the table. And I'm sure I'll be back again soon once I start killing people. So it's Moby again. Well, I have a way to get two victory points this turn. We've just restarted after uh, dinner, by the way. I have a way to get two points. I'm going to get them. I'm, I'm honestly just racing for second at this point. Uh, my fleets are massive. My, my economy is fantastic. I can build baby build. Um, the issue is is that uh, listener just built a sun <laughs> a sun war sun and uh, another one's on the way from other listener so a little worried about that uh, Marty's fleet is absolutely terrible he could get crushed in a in a moment and that would open the way to me so the most interesting thing is that listener and Leland are absolutely ready to. Uh, kill each other. They say they don't want to fight, but their fleets are buttressed right against each other. And I just hope all hell breaks loose. And I will do whatever I can to help all hell breaking loose. So we'll see what happens. Hey, it's Marty. Um, it's been 
several hours since my last confession. Hey, Mark, if you were to surrender, you could do it I have no army, and, but I have the most points by quite a bit. I'm absolutely terrified of any combat in this game. I don't think I'll win anything. Um, but if I think if I hold course, I might be able to win just by the amount of points I have now, as long as nobody gets to 10 before the rounds are done. Um, so right now I think my game is survive. It's uh, Moby again, and I'm really uh, nervous, actually. So there's a gigantic space battle going on right now between uh, Listener and Leland. It's right by the uh, Rex planet, whatever. I don't know what the planet's first name is, but um, it's a gigantic space battle. The problem is, same Listener has uh, a sun weapon uh, close to me within two squares of my homeworld, but right beside Marty. And Marty's not asking for help, and Marty has no fleet whatsoever. Yes, he just, you know, researched this round, those uh, war sons, but he doesn't have any. He doesn't have anything else. He won't negotiate for me helping take it over or, or saving him with my fleet, which is totally within range. I've got a second really strong battle fleet now with upgraded cruisers, but I, <laughs> I have no clue why he doesn't need help. What does he know that I don't know? What does he know? So, anyways, I'm far away from any more victory points, so I I have no fucking clue what I'm going to do next. Yeah, it's Moby again, and uh, disaster, absolute disaster has struck. So my largest fleet, which had, I believe, four Dreadnought battleships, uh, fully loaded with fighters, which are highly upgraded, they hit on rolls of seven, plus a, a carrier was on a wormhole space. And it came up in the agenda phase that everybody could vote to destroy all ships at any wormholes in exchange for getting one technology. Well, I was the only person who had any ships on any wormholes. They all voted for it, and my biggest fleet was wiped out. Um, I'm not in imminent danger, but I'm neutered, and it's going to be very expensive to replace. And honestly, I'm just shell-shocked. I never thought that was even a card that would exist i'm not even mad i'm just like an empty shell i'm just in absolute shock and and just trying to think about rebuilding that's the only thing i can do i have no other plans whatsoever so i don't know we'll see what happens well fuck listener came in and he took rex and he had some random stuff, and he won the game really quickly. So Marty came in second, even though by the end he just had some colony and fighters. I was never able to rebuild my fleet. I started, but it was too late. Uh, other listener had a war son nearby, um, and I ended up being tied for last. So it was a lot of fun, but things really, really fell apart for me near the end of the game and uh i'd still play again i play in a heartbeat it's probably one of my favorite board games that i played yet but yeah i don't know what else to say i lost and i lost fair and square